Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Life in Tudor England was risky. There were the recurrent outbreaks of plague, the threat of poverty and the dangers of childbirth. But there were also slightly less aggressive risks in society. The risk of not fitting in. The risk of social death. We might call these the expectations of Tudor society, walking the walk and talking the talk. How was a person supposed to behave and what were the dangers involved? To give us an insight into how the well-off tried to blend into society to survive and hopefully thrive, I'm pleased to welcome teacher and author of both historical fiction and non-fiction, Tony Mount. Tony is the author of the much-loved Everyday Life in Medieval London, and today she joins us to discuss her latest book, How to Survive in Tudor England. Welcome to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you, Susanna. We are going to be talking today about surviving, or as you call it, blending in in Tudor England. And I want to start with the important point that your work makes, which is namely that we think of the Tudor era beginning in 1485, but very few people woke up after the Battle of Bosworth and thought, oh, now I'm living in the Tudor period, or woke up <laughs> on the 1st of January 1500 and thought, now this is the early modern era. Why do you think we should hold this thought in our minds when we think of people in this period? What does it mean in terms of everyday life? I think what we've got to get out of our minds, really, is the idea that a particular date, a battle, a change of dynasty doesn't really affect everyday life for most people. The change is always gradual. People often ask me, when did the medieval period start and finish? As if I could say, oh, well, it started on Friday, the 15th of January or something. But to me, medieval is a huge period. I take it from around 4.50 right up until about 15.35, 15.40. Because for me, the watershed end 
of medieval is really Henry VIII's dissolution of the monasteries, which changed everything socially for the ordinary person in the street. And in the Reformation that followed was a real big change, even for the casual passerby. It really did change their lives. You explain that your book is about blending into society at a time of rapid and great change. And obviously the dissolution is part of that. What evidence can we look to if we're looking for this blending in? How do we know people tried? If you blend in, you're accepted by society. If you don't blend in, you're other. And the Tudors had various terms for that. Strangers, that was anybody who wasn't your family or foreigners who could simply be people from the next county. And aliens, they were people from other countries. And you were regarded with suspicion. If a crime was committed, foreigners, aliens would be those who were suspected. And of course, we know that the Tudors were, the monarchy was pretty paranoid about anything different. They were jolly-come-latelys as a royal dynasty in Europe. And I can only think that both Henrys in particular thought that everybody was out to get them. So anyone who didn't blend, who didn't belong, could easily get into trouble. So that's the purpose of the book. How do I stay under the radar and not come to the notice of authority? And I suppose we might say that fitting in to Tudor society involved walking the walk, talking the talk. So let's talk the talk first of all. How should a gentleman speak in the Tudor age? Were there any social faux pas that one had to avoid? One thing that you have to consider, and this goes right from medieval through the Georgian period, is that words we use today that are quite minor. For instance, if I say I've got a naughty child, I'm not condemning him, but in Tudor times, if you were naughty, you were naught. You were not even human. So a word like naughty would be applied to murderers. Any sort of descriptive word that to us is a very minor insult could be exaggerated it would have ability to insult than it has today. Now, today, if we say, oh, he's a right bastard, we might not mean it literally, but if you said it in Tudor times, you were imputing someone and a duel could result. Even quite minor insults could uh, really land you in big trouble. And... I suppose if we're keeping with this theme of 
polite behavior. I love the section of your book, which discusses manners, particularly <laughs> table manners. Can you separate myth or at least stereotype from reality for us and tell us what happened if your manners weren't up to scratch? There is a phrase, isn't there, manners maketh man. And that is very much a Tudor idea. Any display of ill manners reduced your status. I dare say that there were lords who got drunk and forgot about manners. There's always going to be people like that. But on the whole, if you wanted to blend in, you best behave yourself at the table. And if you're anywhere near lords or royalty, you have to be quite obsequious, really, to be on the safe side. And that's what sumptuary laws were about. Sumptuary laws were really brought in so that in the street you could identify who was a lord to whom you should make way and take your hat off if you were a male, and those who should do the same to you, and clothes were your badge of status. That's very interesting. So point of these laws which dictate who can wear what is largely about trying to enforce social hierarchy, but not simply for the purposes of people looking like they're fitting into their rank of society, but so that other people know how to respond to them. So it's about categorization. It's about clarity, clear visual distinction between those of a low social status and those who are the elites. Yes, very much. It also saved arguments. If you're in the street, you're wearing white fox fur, shall we say. You are probably noble or at least higher gentry. Any lesser person would step aside for you in the street and treat you with respect. So it stopped arguments about who should step aside for whom. If a nobleman who'd fallen on hard times met with a wealthy merchant, in theory the merchant should sigh, but if he's wearing damask robes, that's where the trouble starts. That was the main reason for sumptuary laws. And sumptuary laws could also apply to how many courses you were supposed to have at dinner and things like that. And how often you could eat meat. That's fascinating. And it's certainly true that we do have many disputes in church quite often about who gets to go in which pew because of precedence being such a sort of important marker of honour and status. With regard to those acts of apparel, though, where some tree laws are relating to clothing, do we know if the laws were ever actually enforced? Not successfully, no. There were huge problems, especially in that people just ignored them or that fashion changed so rapidly that new laws would have to be passed in order to keep up with fashion. The introduction of the rough, that happened very abruptly 
when a Dutch woman came to London and brought with her the method of making starch and how starch, a normal sort of little rough. And people quickly realised that ruffs could get bigger and more elaborate and decorative. But ruffs weren't included in the sumptuary laws. So you got people quite low down the scale, if they could afford it, caused problems. (laughs) So the ruff is a loophole. It's a way around these markers of social status where you can demonstrate wealth without stepping out of line, legally speaking, about what you're allowed to wear. Given that you've started us on a bit of a sense of the clothing of the well-to-do man or woman in Elizabethan England, can you talk us through the rest of this correct apparel, what they would want to wear in order to blend in and hair and makeup as well, please? Tudor fashion changes significantly through time and it depended very much on whether you were a lowly farm worker or queen's lady in waiting or a gentleman courtier. Basically, as with medieval costume, nothing changed underneath. You would wear a shift or sometimes called a chemise this for women. It would be a fairly plain garment, linen, so all natural fabrics, and the shift would be next to your skin. The whole point is that what you wear on top of your shift is often elaborate, or it's of wool, or if you're rich, velvet or silk, something you really cannot wash so that shift underneath stops you sweating into your posh overgarments and for men it would be braids, boxer shorts held up with a drawstring and a plain long sleeve shirt and all the rest would be attached to that or over that so they didn't need to be washed too often. And you would change your undergarments. Rich could change them half a dozen times a day. But most folk tried to have clean once a week, if not daily. And then what you wore on top of that varied according to your status and fashion. For respectable everyday wear for women, it would be usually a skirt and a sort of bodice jacket over the top. An apron was quite normal everyday wear. You'd wear it outside and you'd keep your hair covered if you were married. You're covering your hair is your advertisement that you're married and, of course, The idea goes right back to Eve, who tempted Adam to stray, not by going round stark naked, but because of her beautiful hair. So unmarried women could show their hair, flaunt it, I'm available. But day after your wedding, all got to be covered. So that was for ordinary women. 
people further up the scale were starting to wear hats and that's particularly Elizabethan times. Have an elaborate head with a little hat. They really did change. Gowns tend to go from being flared with Spanish farthingale, which gave a conical shape. But in Elizabeth's reign, you've got the French farthingale, which could really only be worn by the lectured classes because it was so impractical. So that changed. Headdresses changed. You've got Elizabeth of York and Catherine of Aragon wear English gables, which are pointed with a veil of some sort behind. But then Anne Boleyn brings in a French hood, which is a bit more flattering and softer. And altogether, her headwear becomes much more variable, at least for those who can afford it. Yes, there's a lot of change over time. Although I do think that Maria Haywood has shown that actually there are French hoods in Catherine's wardrobe, even before Anne Boleyn comes in. Perhaps Anne Boleyn is the one who popularises them. But there's a sense that this is a century in which clothing changes really quite dramatically from the very low-cut neckline of the 15. 20s and 30s through to that enormous rough and very high necked, as you say, completely different shape of dress for both men and women. It's almost a false category to suggest that there is such a thing as Tudor dress because it changes so radically, doesn't it? Yes, for the men, there are so many different styles. The sort of very padded shorts look, (laughs) which made them look so they had massive bottoms. Earlier with Henry VIII, it had been padded shoulders to make you look strong. Of course, along with the infamous codpiece, which showed everything. Codpieces, fortunately, go out of style after Henry's boastful era. (laughs) Showing everything is what you were supposed to think, but I'm sure that they create an imaginary image rather than anything else. (laughs) Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.
Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Let's talk about some more sombre matters. To walk the walk as a gentleman in the Tudor period, one needed education and employment. Why was this a century of opportunity for some people? What new occupations were there? Progress in what we would call science or technology was certainly bringing in the possibility of new things. In the book, I do an imaginary interview with Thomas Dix, who around the 1560s, his father, we're pretty sure, actually invented the telescope. Although into the next century, Galileo claims to have invented it. But we do know he pinched the idea from a Dutchman. And the reason we think it's telescope, Thomas talks about being able to see into other people's houses miles away. So it's... Uh, Peeping Tom's dream. But he also writes about how the Milky Way is a great swathe of individual stars. And he wouldn't have been able to see that without a telescope of some sort. And he writes a book about it and actually does a diagram of how he thinks the stars are arranged. So you could start to become a scientist. Mathematicians invent plus, minus and equal signs, which makes writing out equations a lot simpler. There are advances in map making, and this is problematic for your standard academic. They've always believed that Ptolemy who wrote in the first century AD, knew about geography, but there's no America on his maps. He also wrote that if you sailed as far as the equator, your blood would boil and you would die because of the heat. And yet explorers were discovering that didn't happen. There were places to the west of the Atlantic that Ptolemy never mentioned. So obviously the ancients didn't have it all correct and people were daring to think for themselves. The medieval mindset had been that when God created Adam just 4,000 years BC. Adam knew everything. But after his fall from grace, he gradually forgot things. And in passing on information to the next generation, they forgot 
even more, so that further you went through history to what was then the present day, the less people knew. That was why medical books, Galen and Hippocrates, and science books by Aristotle were thought to be far more accurate because they were written a couple of thousand years ago, maybe. So they were obviously closer to Adam and knew a lot more. There was no idea that science and technology could progress and the Tudors were starting to change that. New ideas were finally being acceptable and this just led to a complete rethink of everything from geography to poetry to rewriting history. So what did that mean for the ideal education for a child, typically a male child at this time? It didn't really alter. Children, first off, had to be taught to respect God. That was your first thing. The second thing was that you had to prepare the child to be a responsible adult. And you had to teach the child right from wrong. They were the basics of education. And I'm afraid teaching a child right from wrong involved a lot of beating. Children were too young to understand that some things were good and some activities were bad. And the only way to instill it in them was to give them a good hiding if they hurt, or even just to keep them in line. And children were actually supposed to be grateful for a good beating. It was part of education. And the Bible supported this idea in saying that a good father disciplines his child and that spare the rod is to spoil the child. And small children would be taught the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, in English after the Reformation, before that it would have been the Paternoster, the Ave Maria, and various other things. But of course, more teaching for the young is done in English. By the boys seven, he should be willing to learn in Latin if he's going to continue his education. Because grammar schools and university, all teaching was Latin. And what new occupations were there available in this period? To some extent, employment opportunities became more limited, especially for those who weren't educated. Employment was dreadful throughout the Tudor period, mainly because landowners had discovered that if you enclosed your fields with hedges and walls and kept sheep, you didn't need to employ a huge workforce. A couple of shepherds with extra hands taken on for lambing and shearing was all you needed. That also meant that more land went over to growing grass for sheep, which meant less for growing crops 
to feed growing population. Unemployment was rife, but if you were educated, there were opportunities in new jobs. Printing was really taking off, and of course, you had to be literate in both English and possibly Latin. But English was coming into its own. You could now write poetry. A new format was sonnets, the first of which was written towards the end of Henry VIII's reign. The first novels were written, dramas were written, proper plays. There were also things called interludes, which we might call comedy sketches. They would often take place during a full-length drama to allow costume and scenery changes to go on in the background. And a merry interlude would keep the audience occupied so that anything that was literate, novels, drama, poetry, you start to get secular music written down. And this happens partly because of the Reformation. The Roman Catholic Church had anthems and various other beautiful pieces of music, but many of the Protestants think music should be playing. Otherwise, it's distracting the congregation from the words. Secular music takes over the idea of beautiful polyphonic harmonies and that sort of thing. So you could be a musician and madrigals coming from Italy, the lute becomes more popular and you get a whole load of new instruments. A downside to all this was the threat of poverty, which could and did strike even the rich. Why did poverty become such a major threat in the 16th century? And what types of poverty affected the well-off? As I've mentioned, a lot of landowners were starting to enclose their fields and keep sheep rather than growing food crops. Food became more scarce and therefore expensive. People who would have been farm labourers were often out of work. And once the monasteries were closed, there was no fallback. Nothing was put in place of the monasteries as a place to go to beg food and drink and receive arms to help you get through the next day or two. So country people would travel to the nearest town to try and get a job. But every town had its preference for local people to get employment. It's what we said at the start about a suspicion of strangers and foreigners. If there was a job going, it would be the local people who would get it. So your incomers cannot get a job. In the bigger towns, there would be guilds. And again, guilds are aimed at keeping the local trades and crafts in the hands of the locals. And their authorities' answer to this 
was to send any vagabonds, as they called them, back to where they'd come from, which, of course, wasn't an answer. Going back to the parish where you started out, you'd left it because there was no work, and now you were just sent back. Then Henry VIII had money problems, and even after the dissolution of the monasteries, this didn't entirely solve his cash flow difficulties. So he reduced the value of the coins. For example, the sovereign Henry decided it was now worth one pound, two shillings and sixpence, without adding any extra cost. The silver coinage was debased by adding a bit of tin, a bit of copper, a bit of lead, anything that was going. And it ended up that the English coinage was so bad, so adulterated, that foreign merchants didn't even want to accept it. So even if you had a job, the coins in your purse were not worth what they had been. And that also applied to the nobility. It sounds like a good idea to shift your tenants off the land and give it over to sheep. But if there's any problem with sheep and the wool trade on which England relied took a dive in the middle of the Tudor period. So money just isn't coming in and the landlords and nobility have got rid of their tenants. But now the sheep aren't bringing in the same amount of money. There aren't any rents from tenants to fall back on. And possibly if you do have tenants, they haven't got the money to pay you. Landlords are floundering. They're also short of cash. And that went right up the scale. The king's in financial difficulties, so the nobility aren't going to be much better off, which meant your local lord often wanted to marry his children off to the children of London financiers who were still making money. And that, of course, blurred the distinction between lords and commoners. Now, thinking of that class of people who did have money, albeit money that was depreciating in their pockets, I know there were some thrilling, even risky pursuits in terms of leisure at this time. We've done podcasts on football, for example. But I'd like to ask you about indoor fun, because it seems that they played a lot of board games and cards. Is it going too far to say that many Tudors of the upper ranks were inveterate gamblers? Oh, definitely. They would bet on two flies on a table, which one would take off first. You couldn't do anything without the possibility that it might be gambled on. Card games come in around the end of the 15th century, and there were some very complicated games which were extremely fashionable, but just throwing the dice was a game. You didn't need to bet on anything, really. And we know that Henry VIII ran up huge debts, and any sort of sport required gambling. 
whether it was stickles, bowling, archery, football. And we know that Henry VIII actually had a pair of football boots in his wardrobe. Any sort of sport, you would bet on it. To finish then, I'd like to return to the mission you set yourself in writing, advising readers how they could blend into society. Was blending in to survive really ever possible at a time of such rapid social, economic, religious and political change? It wouldn't have been easy, that's for certain. Just the face of a strike made you suspect but if you could learn to, as you said, walk the walk, if your language seemly, your manners were respectable and you dressed the part, you could fit in. And really, I think fitting in is about the best you could hope to achieve. Staying under the king's radar, not marrying anyone too important, not being too wealthy or being too poor you would have to try to be Mr and Mrs average really what's about safe as you could be and keep quiet about your religious beliefs whichever way they swung even if you didn't believe you better keep quiet about it because Atheism was a terrible event. The death penalty was the answer to atheism. And of course, if you believed in Catholicism, just keep quiet. So no great rigid oaks, but instead to be as supple as a reed is the way to survive in Tudor England. Thank you, Tony, so much for your time and your insights. It's been enormous fun and There's been some wonderful details here that I'm sure have surprised and fascinated people. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been lovely chatting. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And also to my researcher, Alice Smith, and my producer, Rob Weinberg. We are always eager to hear from you, so do drop us a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on X, formerly known as Twitter, at notjusttudors. And please remember to follow Not Just the Tudors wherever you get your podcasts, so you get each new episode as soon as it's released. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, 
you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.